You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. So, so uh, we've spent a lot of time, or, or we've spent time the last several weeks in this section of Scripture, and the last few Sundays we've covered a lot of the big ideas that Paul is discussing here and he's teaching the church. And I've talked about this before, but it's become really clear to me that as we study Scripture, man, it's so good and it's so important to try and draw every little bit out of it, right? So the whole thing for us is to say, you know, we study the Bible, it's called um, exegetically, right? So we read the text and we try and discover what the text means. And the way that I was always taught to do that was to go verse by verse, word by word, right? And there's a lot of value in that. But one of the problems with that is that can also prevent us from seeing the big picture, And that's a lot of where we start to understand the big story of God's redemptive plan is this big picture stuff, right? So the two have to be combined together. There's moments in time where we need to nitpick and get into the minutia of studying language and sort of historical context of things and culture and how we apply those things to our lives. But sometimes we also need to step back and look at the big picture of what God is presenting to us in his word because the scripture is made up of big stories, real life historical big things that are pointing to an even bigger story, which is God's redemptive narrative, the story from the beginning to the end of God building relationship with his people through his son, Jesus. And then in the midst of those big stories and big real things that have happened, there's all these little connecting points, right? There's all these little um, things in between the verses that are implications for us of of like uh, words of encouragement, words of conviction, calling us to a deeper holiness, words of uh, expectation even, the things that we should expect of the Lord in our relationship with him. And so I I think that's what we see. We're going to work our way through chapter three as we've already read a lot of it. I'm going to just pull out some specific verses that I think have some sort of um, between the lines information for us to be encouraged by. And so we'll spend some time drawing those things out. Now, look at verse seven, Ephesians chapter three, verse seven. And it says this, of this gospel, I was made a minister of, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now let's start here. And I think I just read a quote this week that I think it was Spurgeon who said it. He said, if, if a a, a preacher's sermon doesn't begin with Jesus uh, and end with Jesus and everything in the middle, talk about Jesus. It's not a sermon worth listening to, right? Like, so there's some value to that. Right. And here's how, how, here's how I sort of contextualize that. We have to see the gospel in everything we're doing. Let me, let me qualify that though, because there's a lot of people nowadays who, no matter what they're doing in their activity in the church, or no matter what they're preaching, they'll say and tag onto it, that's gospel, right? Everything's gospel, right? Outreach is gospel. Fellowship is gospel. Eating dinner is gospel, right? Like they'll try and attribute everything to the gospel. The truth is, is we need to know the gospel in fullness. And this is where we, we've discussed this a lot. Mark it down. First Corinthians 15. Paul tells us what the gospel is. He's really clear and very specific with the church 
about what the gospel is. So when we talk about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, his love for us, God's good plan for us, it's not simply that God loves you and has a good plan for your life. I think that was the, was it the four spiritual or the five spiritual laws? I forget how many there were. But, but that was sort of the introduction oftentimes in the 70s and 80s uh, to try and share the gospel with someone was to say, hey, do you know that God loves you and has a good plan for your life? That's great. But that sort of misses the point a lot of times because often it didn't go any deeper than that. Hey, God loves you. You should become a Christian. Great. God loves me. Let me be a Christian by name only. Versus what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 in explaining what the gospel is. And and I'll say this, it may seem redundant, it may seem like we've talked about this a lot or you've heard this a lot. But remember how we've talked about recently, the church, the gathering of God's people, needs to be constantly evangelized. We need to be reminded of this truth, the depth of the gospel. So here's the gospel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Number one, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Number two, that he was buried. And number three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the fullness of the gospel. If we're missing any one of those pieces, then it's not the full gospel. And when we hear someone, quote unquote, preaching the gospel or sharing Jesus with someone, if we're missing one of those components, then we've missed it. We haven't given them the actual authenticity of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Number one, Jesus died for sin. If we're sharing the gospel and we're not talking about sin and the difference between a holy and righteous God and sinful humanity, we're not sharing the gospel. Because if Jesus died, well, what's the point of him dying? What was that all about? Was it just that he was a sacrifice? Well, if that's true, what was he a sacrifice for? It was for sin. We have to acknowledge our sinfulness. And I've heard a lot of people in the modern age say, well, you shouldn't preach too hard about sin. People already feel bad enough as it is. They know that they're sinners. They don't need you telling them that they're a sinner. In the same way that the church, already knowing the good news of Jesus Christ, needs to constantly be evangelized. We we need to constantly be reminded of the gospel truth. The world who wants to normalize and, and make sin okay needs to constantly be reminded, unfortunately, that anything that opposes God is sin. So that has to be a part of the gospel. And then the reality that Jesus really died for sin, that he was buried, but then on the third day that he rose up to life. If we're missing any one of those components, we're missing out on the fullness of the gospel that needs to be shared with people. Now, we talked, uh, I was talking with the, with the youth group a couple weeks ago. And, you know, in, in doing these things, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, methodology, if you will, where, where it's, that might seem overwhelming to go, let me just jump into a conversation, right? And, and just jump into talking to, to someone about Jesus and the fact that they're a sinner and need to be saved. That's an intimidating thing. Of course, the best context for this truth is in relationship. When you develop a relationship with someone, right? 
It starts out as simple, maybe casual relationship, conversation, those kinds of things. It starts to get serious and then it needs to get spiritual. You see, that's how a lot of relationships end up. Uh, they start out real simple, real, real just simplistic, talking about how's the weather and you're my cashier at the grocery store, those kinds of things. And over time, those relationships can develop and they become more serious. You tar- start talking about real life stuff, family, health, issues, all those kinds of things that come out in life. And then eventually, it's inevitable that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the spiritual life that you hold or that you want to share with someone else will come into that relationship. But it takes time to build that relationship. But that's, that's how we do that in, in terms of moving through uh, uh, some of that uncomfortableness of how do I get to sharing the gospel? It's in those relationship steps. Now take a look back at Ephesians chapter three. Paul says of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul says that he was made a minister. And I find this interesting. And this is one of those between the line things that I think is is, is cool when you start to play it out to its fullest conclusion. We're called with this gospel that we've believed in. Jesus has sent us out to make disciples, to take this gospel out into the world and to make disciples, teaching people to obey all the things that Jesus has commanded, right? The things that he's taught us. Now in that, Paul says that he was made a minister. The implication there is that he didn't choose to be a minister. God made him. In fact, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul didn't apply for the job. Paul was made to do the job that he did. And again, read Acts chapter nine. If you want to go back to that story where Saul persecuted the church gets made into Paul, where he's, he's now serving Jesus and taking that gospel to the world, specifically to the Gentiles. I want you to stop and also consider several other characters in the New Testament and what they were made to be. Take note of these, and you can read these stories later if you want. But stop and think about the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon the gathering of the believers. Jesus has ascended into heaven. And now the Holy Spirit has come to take up residence in the believers individually. And at that moment, Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, was made to be an evangelist. He speaks and tells who Jesus is to the collected gathering of people there in the temple area. And he speaks out the truth of Jesus. That message, by the power of the Holy Spirit, cuts them to the heart and they say, what must we do to be saved? And then he tells them, believe upon Jesus and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Thousands of people are added to the church in that day. Peter didn't go through a, 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 a crash course or some sort of seminar to learn how to be an evangelist. He was made an evangelist in that moment by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? Think about one of the first deacons, Philip. In that, in that Acts chapter 8 scene of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It says at the very beginning of Acts chapter 8 that an angel appeared to him and told him where he needed to go, right, along the road. And then as he sees the, the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch in it and hears him reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and, and, and it says that he, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Philip, goes and talks to him and explains to him the scriptures 
Philip is made to be, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a teacher. Who knows what his actual giftings were? Not real sure. But in that moment, he was made to be a teacher of the word so that he could explain the scriptures to the Ethiopian eunuch, thus leading him to salvation, ultimately baptizing him. Stop and think, again, about in, in chapter 8 as well, I believe. Chapter 7, pardon me. Uh, again, one of the first deacons, Stephen. In the moment that Stephen is brought before the religious leaders of the day, Stephen is asked to answer for this message, this gospel message. And in that moment, it says Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit and he begins to be a historian and a preacher of the truth of, of redemption all the way through God's people leading up to the reality of Jesus, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And ultimately what happens in that story, as you know, is that they are angered so much that they're gnashing their teeth at him. They're so angry at Stephen for what he's saying in terms of the gospel truth that they pick up stones to throw at him and he becomes a martyr. But in that moment, the heavens are opened up to him and he sees Jesus standing, waiting to receive him into glory. Stephen in that moment was made to be a preacher and a convicting preacher at that, obviously. Here's my point, reading between the lines, when Paul says that I was made to be a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Here's the point. God uses us. Whoever we are, God uses us how he wants, when he wants, and where he wants. We don't necessarily apply for a job in ministry. That whole concept that we have of ministry being a profession, okay, I, I can live with that. But the reality is, is that the most effective ministry that ever takes place is when God simply just says, guess what? I'm taking you where you are and I'm gonna put you where I need you and here's what I need you to say. God's the one who does that by the filling of his Holy Spirit, not by us strategizing and saying, how can we as a church or how can I as an individual put myself into a better position to share the gospel with someone? Should we always be looking for opportunities to share the gospel? Absolutely, yes. But it goes hand in hand with us submitting ourselves, being obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit all day long. People that are always sharing the gospel, the truth is, is that the most likely answer to how is it that they're so effective in the ministry? It's because they're just yielding themselves to the Holy Spirit. They're not allowing their little hangups or sins or insecurities or fears to override the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm afraid to do that. I'm afraid to go talk. Well, why? Aren't you excited about Jesus? Don't you love the fact that you're saved, right? Wouldn't you want to share that with someone who needs that? Yeah, but it's still hard. Yeah, of course it's hard. But listen, it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit in you leading you. Think with me real quick to Romans chapter 9. Paul is, is teaching about God's sovereignty in salvation. But there's a point that needs to be made here, and we take the principle of what Paul says here in Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, and apply it to this concept that God's the one who makes us who we are in the moment. He uses us how he wants. Romans chapter 9, verse 20, 21 says this, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? That's not even just a little bit convicting. I'm not sure what to say. And we all know it. We've all had those moments. 
and however we experience it for ourselves, that sort of like tightness in our chest, that sort of like feeling like I got to talk, I got to say it. And yet we push it down. We decide to do something else. We say, no, that's something else. You know, that's the bad chili I ate last night for dinner or whatever the case might be. Right. And we push it down and we ignore it. And yet this principle is true. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Paul continues and says, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? God, I didn't ask to be an evangelist. <laughs> I didn't ask to be a Bible teacher necessarily, right? Like, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? God gets to choose how he uses us, where and when, okay? That's God's domain. And, and our responsibility in that is quite simply to be obedient to him in that. When the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon us, when we're filled with the Spirit, to do and say and, and, and live in such a way that we're giving testimony to Jesus, man, that's our job to be obedient about those kinds of things. Now, maybe you think that your life, like what Paul's talking about, some vessels, some pottery is used for common things and some are used for, for special purposes. Well, maybe you might look at your life and just go, I'm common. That's all. I don't have any special purposes in my life. I'm not the guy who likes to talk out loud. I don't sing. I don't blah, 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 blah. Listen, listen. Whatever your life is, the context of it, whatever your influence is, who you're around and who you interact with, whatever the ministry is that God has given to you, it may be common in the sense of maybe there's a lot of people who simply wake up every morning, give their day to Jesus, go work hard, love their families, and come home at night and just say, God, thank you for another day, right? Maybe, maybe the commonality of that ministry, maybe there's so many people who are involved in that because that's what's needed. A world full of people who wake up every day and go, Jesus, I love you. Will you just guide my steps today? And we have millions of people, hopefully, who love Jesus, who are just bumping into everybody else during the day, where they work, where they shop, where they play. And there's this faithful presence of people who have the spirit of God so that in big ways or small ways, special ways or common ways, Jesus is getting shared with people. Yeah. And yeah, then, then there's others that we look at and go, well, that's, God's kind of using them in a special way, right? Like they've got a voice or they've got some sort of ministry. Listen, that's fine. The key for us is to be content where God has us and not be looking at somebody else's ministry, the grass on their side of the fence and going, I'd rather be doing that. I, was the, I did that for a long time. Lord, make me a pastor. I just want to be a pastor. God, that's all I want to do is be a pastor, Okay problem is, is that the reason I wanted to be a pastor is that my image, what I saw as a pastor was guys who simply drove around in trucks that the church bought for them, eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner with people, hanging out and talking to guys, going on trips and doing youth activities and talking about Jesus and teaching Bible studies. That's what was my impression of what a pastor was. It was fun, which there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's cool. And it can be effective, but that's what I was looking at going, Lord, I want to have that ministry. Because that one looks like a lot more fun than being a lock salesman. That wasn't very fun. That wasn't a great ministry, Lord. I don't think I was very effective in that one. Well, if I wasn't, it wasn't because God didn't give me opportunities. It was because I was being a lousy little brat who said, the grass is greener. I wish I could do that guy's job, right? And through years and years of refinement, hopefully, 
than to be in the position that I'm in now. It's not as though God granted me this as some sort of reward because the reality of the truth of scripture comes back into play when James says in James chapter three, verse one, not many of you should be teachers. Why? Because they're going to incur a stricter judgment, both eternally, but in this world. It's hard. And I'm not sitting here going, hey, this is me complaining and being bothered. No, I'm, I'm humbled by what God has called me to do because it does pull me into the reality of, Lucian, you better be pursuing holiness. Or else when you sit there on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, you're a hypocrite unless you're actually doing the things that you're talking about. Yeah. So there's that, there's that um, pressure or that stricter judgment. But, but James also continues in that teaching on not many of you should be teachers because it's going to incur a stricter judgment, all that kind of stuff. But he goes on in the rest of it, of that teaching in James chapter three, where what he's really talking about is the tongue and our mouths and how that can get us into trouble. And those of us who are in public and who talk a lot, our mouths get us into trouble frequently. At least mine does frequently. And we have to be careful about that, right? Because we want to have a good testimony, right? And so in light of what God made Paul to be, in the fact that you see throughout scriptures that all the examples of the people that were used to minister the gospel, God made them by the filling of the Holy Spirit and by his power, not because they chose to be something or do something or push themselves forward. And so I believe the message for us is to hear how we need to grow in our knowledge of how God has called us, whether it's in really common ways or perhaps in a moment, something very special that God prepares and then simply rejoice that God has called us at all, right? Like, who am I, Lord, that you would use me? Who am I, like the psalmist says, that you would even be aware of me, right? Like, why would you even be thinking about me at all? I thought about this as I was preparing when something is small, there's this paradigm in terms of, of small church, large church, right? And a lot of times we see large church as this really effective thing because they got all kinds of programs. They got places for the kids and the high schoolers and the college group and the women's study and the men's study and the recovery study. And, like, and it looks like there's all this activity and work going on, right? And so we start to think of large as having all these resources and being really, really good. But here's the thing. When you're small, it's sort of like uh, guerrilla warfare versus how the old British army used to fight. How did the old British army used to fight? They used to line up, march towards each other, and just shoot each other until everybody fell down. Versus guerrilla warfare, where they were small bands of people who were hiding behind trees and jumping out of hiding places and attacking from all kinds of angles. Listen, a big church, a large gathering, it may seem like this overwhelming force just by pure numbers, right? But the reality is is that the smaller groups, man, you're mobile, you're nimble, you have the ability to take different angles on people. And the truth of the matter is that small can be powerful if it's pure, right? If the intention of what you're doing is pure, like, listen, we're all in this together. We're linking arms and we're joining together and we love this gospel that we've, that's affected our lives. Let's go and let's make that difference by being these little guerrilla warfare agents and just showing up in places where people don't expect Jesus to be there we are versus here's this big army that's just putting on a full force and maybe it's impressive maybe it looks real good but it's actually really easy to take them out right they're not very solid and they're not very stable and i'm not making that accusation against big churches i'm just saying in defense of if god has called you to something that seems common or small even perhaps 
There's power in that if there's purity in it. So let's be confident that God has called us to something very, very important, regardless of what ministry it is. Now, we went through the rest of the first half of the chapter a couple Sundays ago. Verse 14 uh, through 19, uh, we really covered on uh, this last Sunday. But let's jump into verse 19 real quick. I want to just draw this out. Paul says, to know the love of Christ. This is his prayer for the church. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I've heard this quote in various places. I, I think it's attributed originally to a, a pastor in New York named Timothy Keller, Tim Keller. Perhaps you've heard of him. He's written some great books. The Reason for God is a powerful, powerful book. Gives a very logical argument in terms of apologetics on how we can argue with atheists in terms of why we believe what we believe. But Tim Keller says this, we are far worse sinners than we could ever imagine. Even as bad as we think we are, like even when we confess our sin and know our sin, he says, we're far worse than we could ever imagine. But he also says, we are far more loved than we could ever dream. Now that's a powerful truth that I know I have not lived in. I know that I have not lived in light of this knowledge that God loves me. That God actually loves me so much that he has these points of discipline for me or that he has these points of correction or that he has great things he's planned for me to do if I would only be obedient to the things that he's called me to. This is what Paul's prayer is. This is what he's praying for the church. He wants these other Christians to embody this. And he says, this is why I bow my knees before the Father, right? This is what I'm praying for you. We said it on Sunday, that he may grant you to be strengthened in verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. That same spirit that made him to be a minister, that made Peter to be an evangelist. He's praying for that same spirit to go to the church so that you could be strengthened in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you'd be rooted and grounded in love and that you may have strength. This is what Paul's praying for. Listen, you Christians, you need to be strong. Not because you necessarily have to stand against the works of the devil. You're going to have to do that. Not to be strong just so you could battle the sin in your life. Yeah, you're going to need to be strong to do that. But this is the reason Paul's praying for strength for the church. So that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul says the reason you believers need to be strong is because you can't even handle how much God loves you. That's why we need to be strong is so that we can somehow embrace and grasp in some way, comprehend in some form the fact that God loves us enough to give up his son for us. We hear it so much as Christians, but I don't think we always latch on to that and really understand that I'm sitting in this position where God loves me, really loves me, wants fellowship with me, wants intimacy with me. Sometimes words that because maybe some of our experiences in, the, in, in life have pushed us away from those things. Intimacy is scary revealing things that are really deep in me and being known truly. I don't know if I want people to know me. 
was having some conversations this week with some guys where, where we were getting down to some real stuff. And that's kind of scary, especially I think for men, women, I'm not generalizing too much, but women oftentimes access emotional parts of their life much easier than men. Well, having some conversations with men where it was like, okay, boys, we got to get down to some serious things. We need to talk about some real things. We're going to say some words that are uncomfortable and we need to talk about them. But it's because we can't hide from God. We have to be real with him because he already knows us. And so if we're putting on an act, we're just, we're hiding by ourselves and God's looking at us going, what are you doing? You look silly. I can see you, right? But this is Paul's prayer is that we would have strength so that we would understand the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Listen to what Paul's prayer doesn't say. This is, this is huge. For me, this is huge. Listen to what his prayer doesn't say. That you as Christians would be strengthened so that you could do mighty things for the Lord. That's not his prayer. His prayer isn't so that, that you'd be strengthened to go out and do great feats of faith for, for the Lord. That's not it. And he definitely doesn't say that I want you to be strengthened so that you have the ability to impress each other with how much you know about God. What he wants you to be strengthened for is so that you can kind of comprehend, kind of latch onto this idea that God really, really loves you. You're going to need strength for that. And then he goes on and finishes that verse 19 and says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the fullness of God would incorporate saying, yeah, we need to know good theology. We need to have that study that is deep and maybe we have to break down language and we have to understand godly attributes and his character and his holiness and we need to study those things. Yeah, we need good theology. Yes, we need good worship and praise. It needs to be a part of our life to express ourselves to the Lord. We need sweet fellowship. All of these things are a part of the life that we've been given, right? But what we need more than anything else is an acknowledgement and the experience of being loved by Jesus. That's what we need more than anything else, to be loved and then to love in return, right? We're told to love the way that we're, we're, we love. We're told to forgive the way that we've been forgiven, okay? This is what Paul is saying, and this is what he's praying for the church. Now, comprehending this last part of the verse that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, comprehending the love of Jesus apparently leads to us experiencing a fullness of God that we don't experience when we neglect the knowledge of God's love through Jesus. Now that's an interesting paradigm to think about. That we're that, that if we're not cognizant, if we're not aware of God's love through Jesus to us, we're missing out on some sort of fellowship with God that reveals more fullness to him, okay? I think this is, this is, how, that, this is how I grasp that, and this is how I, I could explain it best. The story is told of the apostle John, okay? That as he got older and older and older, when he would travel around to different churches, all he would do is stand up in front of the church and look at them as the old man in the faith that he was and just say, little children, love each other. And you go, this is John. He walked with Jesus. Couldn't he tell us some deep truth, some hidden thing about 
Jesus that would somehow just rock our world theologically? Couldn't he share with us something that would just set our head spinning and just go, oh, whoa, I didn't even realize that, right? This is John, the guy who gets the revelation. Like, couldn't you give us some insight into what the whole thing was with the woman and the beast and the thing? Like, I think I know, but I don't really. And so John, tell, and no, John's message was little children love each other. See, I think the older we get, the deeper we get into a relationship with Jesus and we start to understand the depth of God's love for us, we understand that the deep things of God are not rooted in our understanding necessarily. They're in our response to his love, how we love each other. Why? Because Jesus said, it's the testimony of the church, how we love each other, that's how the world is going to know we're Jesus' disciples. I've spent years now studying, trying to study deeply and, and trying to read broadly and, and, and educate myself as much as I could to these things, deep things, theological things, historical things, language, all these kinds of things. But I'm starting to see and starting to get this picture that I could talk for years about everything that I've learned or read but truly, truly, truly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 is what has to be realized. If I don't have love in any of that stuff, I'm worthless. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It means nothing. We have to love one another. We have to experience the love of God so that we can understand the love of God, right? Like you see how that works? It's kind of this weird paradigm, but like, I got to experience it and, and comprehend it so that I could really experience it. That's the idea there. So let's finish out verses 20 and 21. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This idea of how much God can do that we might doubt is shot throughout the scripture. It's all throughout stories, especially I think in the Old Testament, although the disciples are guilty of this as well. This idea that I believe, Lord, but there's some things I don't believe, right? Wasn't that the prayer of the, of the, of the, of the man in the temple? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? When you think about this idea of like, they believe in God, but they had some doubts. Who are some of the characters that come up to mind, come to mind biblically? Thomas. Thomas in the New Testament, right? I'll believe it if I see it. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus appears. Go ahead, put your hand right here. You know, put your hand right here and let's see what happens, right? Zachariah. Oh, yeah, Zachariah, absolutely. So much so that the Lord closes his mouth. Big one. Abraham. Abraham, Father Abraham. The guy who's considered the father of three major world religions. <laughs> the Jews, the Arabs, and the Christians, right? They all look to Abraham as the starting point of their faith, rightfully so. But I think about Abraham and I think about the promise of a child given to him and to Sarah. Sarai at that point, right? And what a knucklehead, man. <laughs> God uses blunt tools, man. And God used Abraham even in the midst of Abraham you know, Sarah says, here, sleep with my handmaiden and we'll make this thing happen on our own rather than trusting what God's word says. Okay, you bet, babe, whatever you say. What a knucklehead. And yet God is faithful to use him, right? I also think of Moses. 
you know? You're going to go talk to Pharaoh and you're going to go lead my people. Yeah, but I stutter. I have trouble speaking. What does God say? Didn't I make your tongue? Who, who, who? Oh yeah, that was me. I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who formed you. I'm the one who gave you a mouth and a tongue. Don't you think that I can, I can do things that you think are impossible? You know, this concept get, gets used, I think, oftentimes incorrectly within the explanation of it. I think a lot of times people want to use this explanation to say, you Christians, come on, put your faith in God. You can do anything you want to do. No, no, no. Remember, the key is God will use you how, when, and where he wants. But your belief that he can I think is an essential piece of that equation. If you don't think God's going to use you or can use you and you live in resistance to that truth, okay, well, then my guess is it's not God who's not using you. It's you who are rejecting what God has prepared for you. Okay? So, so here Paul says part of this prayer is to him who's able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think according to the power at work within us, which we know is the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. There's nobody else who receives glory but Jesus, right? There's nothing that gets accomplished in a ministry, in a church fellowship, in an individual life that is praiseworthy except for God. There's nothing and no one who deserves that praise other than the Lord. My desire is for us to be people who hear God's word humbly receive it, believe what it says, and then go and do the things, be obedient to do the things that God has told us to do. Believing, knowing, living in the truth that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the tasks that he has given to us or the things that he desires to do in us. It's a strange thing. I argued with a brother years ago about partnership. And what, what I mean by that is I was very much convinced at the time that in God's sovereignty, it means that he does everything and we can't claim anything in the Lord. Now, that's true in regard to salvation, right? We don't go around groping and finding and searching out for truth in God. It's God who's the prime mover. He's the one who makes the first move. He draws us by his Holy Spirit, right, to come towards him. Right? And so because of that truth, I was convinced that everything in ministry, life, everything, it's all God's sovereignty who's moving all the puzzle pieces around or the chess pieces on the board. God's doing all those things. My brother in the Lord was saying, but, but listen, listen, there's partnership. God calls us into relationship and fellowship. And here's the reality is that even if God is the one doing the compelling and the working and the moving of the pieces, there's still the reality that I have to, in my flesh, in my mind, with my mouth, say, yes, Lord. Is God responsible for my answer? Yeah, absolutely. But do I still have to engage in that and and do the things that God has called me to and respond to him? Yes, that's partnership. God's inviting us to be a part of the story. Why he chooses to use us in that way, I can't explain. I don't know why necessarily. And yet God calls each of us individually and as a group to be the agents of change in the world. His Holy Spirit's doing the work. He's empowering us. He's convicting people. And then yet he tells us, you go out and share this good news and do the work of ministry, teaching everything that Jesus taught us. So let's be those people.